Field Talk Radio Season 7, Episode 20. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 20 of TL Talk Radio. I'm Lynn Funy-Hatton. And I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. Today, we're speaking with Jason Palmer, General Partner at New Markets Venture Partners, a leading education-focused venture capital firm. Jason's been affiliated with New Markets since 2011 and brings 20 years of experience as an education technology entrepreneur, executive, and investor, including three years at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. New Markets is an early and growth stage venture capital firm that invests in and actively assists innovative education, information technology, and business service companies. So welcome to our podcast, Jason. Thanks so much for having me. Let's jump into our conversation this morning with a personal story about how you became interested in innovation in education. Well, thanks so much for asking that. If you go way back in the 1990s, I graduated from the University of Virginia and I was an entrepreneur. I started a little meal plan uh, after I graduated called the Corner Meal Plan. That was kind of my first business venture. And I did that, uh, it was like a trade-off at the very end when I graduated. I was either gonna join Teach for America or I was gonna start the Corner Meal Plan. And uh, I, I, you know, for the next eight years, I started three businesses and was kind of on this entrepreneurial track where I was just gonna be an entrepreneur. But I grew up in an education household. My dad was a teacher who became a principal, who became an assistant superintendent and a superintendent. I've always been super passionate about education. And I always wondered like, what about that road I could have taken where I could have done Teach for America, but instead I'd started this little tiny business in Charlottesville, Virginia. And after my third company failed pretty spectacularly in 2001, which I would be happy to tell you more about over a drink sometime, it's probably not worthy of this podcast. Um, I really did a lot of soul searching and said like, well, I could keep starting businesses and two would succeed and one would fail and I could be kind of an entrepreneur my whole life creating random businesses or I could find a real passion to devote my life to. And I decided I would devote the next 25 years of my life, I even wrote like a little mission statement, devote the next 25 years of my life to this intersection of education and technology and see what I could do to either be an entrepreneur or help entrepreneurs at exactly that intersection. I've always been kind of a tech geek since I was a kid. And then the last 20 years have been kind of following that path of seeing how I can work with education and technology and apply my entrepreneurial talents there. So being in this field of education, we don't tend to be very entrepreneurial, <laughs> many of us, <laughs> at least. So I'm curious, like, what is what is like the thing that gets you up in the morning that that keeps you on this entrepreneur path? Because, you know, you talked about those spectacular failures and things like that. And mm-hmm. I noticed that in a lot of entrepreneurs, like they they have those spectacular failures, but yes, they still have that grit and persistence. So what keeps Jason on this entrepreneurial path? That's interesting. So the main thing that keeps me on this path, honestly, is that I wrote down that mission statement and I really committed it to myself. Um, And then the way entrepreneurship works out about 90% of the companies fail uh, and 10% succeed. And even the ones that succeed wildly in education technology, they don't become Facebook. They become, you know, a company with a great technology that's used in a thousand school districts. That's a massive success in our market. 
but what really fuels me is a the mission that I've committed myself to, and then b that I've seen multiple phases of edtech evolution, and it keeps getting better and better. More and more teachers are adopting, more and more research is done on the efficacy of the products. Like actually, this very moment in time, even though you say you know education may not be as innovative, I think it's crazy innovative. Uh, there are 8,000 education technology products that we're keeping an eye on that are being used in school districts all over the country. Teachers are more creative than ever before in adopting them for their particular class, or their particular subject, or especially now with COVID and people learning at home. Um, I mean, there's way too many articles about how bad online education is right now and not enough about how awesomely creative teachers are being. It's It's compared to 2001. 2001 was like, you know, the black and white TV days of education technology. It was like text on a screen. It was a very lame imitation of Yahoo. Now it's like, I've I've an investment in a virtual reality and education company that's being used to train teachers at 60 education schools around the country. And they're loving it. They're teaching to like a simulated class. They're learning if they call on the boys more than they call on the girls. They're learning how to do differentiated instruction through a virtual reality connection. Now, that, that's a little bit of my one of my more radical investments, but like that's completely different than 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And teachers love it. So before we get into the the uh, article that you wrote on the pandemic and higher ed, one more mm -hmm. um, question in this area. So th the way that you're you're describing this, all these really neat, innovative things that are happening in the in the K-12 space, I guess. Uh, yeah. Both spaces. How, how, how come people, more people don't know about this? Well, why don't people know more about it? In part, it's because it's kind of hard if you're, I still think in terms of news coming through newspapers, I actually subscribe to the Baltimore Sun here. And, and probably many people that are listening are also newspaper readers, but the vast majority of people learn from TV news. Mm -hmm. That's how they get their news. And it's kind of hard to show how innovative education technology happens in a three minute video news clip. There are a few of them out there and we actually encourage our companies to try to get, you know, anytime a news reporter calls in from a TV station, you take it, you figure out a way, you think hard about how you want to show them the various aspects of it. But it's not something that's filmed very easily often. There's usually the, you know, the five kids sitting in a circle playing, you know, some type of collaborative thing. That's the little clip that gets shown. How do you show students, you know, learning to interact with primary news sources to write their first persuasive argumentative paper? Like that, that's kind of hard, um, you know, but organizations like Common Lit are, are having millions of students do that every week. And it, it still hasn't appeared on the TV yet, mm -hmm. but eventually it will. Yeah, it's what what piques my curiosity is I think in education we're so nose to the ground in like dealing in the present that we don't <laughs> think about like what could learning look like when our kindergartners get to be high school students. Mm -hmm. And just hearing you talk about those things, I find very intriguing and interesting to sort of think about that. You know, we yes, we have to be in the present, but how do we also Mm -hmm. bring in that future because it's going to change or it's going to happen to us right. some way rather than us sort of planning out strategically what that's going to look like or what that could look like. 
And even more depressing is the fact that it's so hard to do that right now when you have COVID and all the operational challenges that you're facing. Like think about the amount of time that we're spending on that versus our big picture thinking and our visioning and the work that we've spent so much time on in the past. And, and that's a good segue into your, into your article that you recently published, Jason. Well, thanks. Yeah. Just briefly on that, or maybe connecting to kind of the article, the education technology is a market thinking like a business person, because I'm kind of both a business person and someone who thinks like an educator, it, it moves medium slowly. So you can really see these trends if you've been watching long enough, like 20 years, like I have, and it is going to be vastly different in 10 years than it is now. But right now we still feel like innovation is only a fringe thing or it's only happening here and there. And we don't recognize like 20 years ago, there was this whole movement to give every student a device. I mean, you all know this because you probably were working overtime to make sure students had broadband and computers and, you know, kind of create equal access. But that was sort of a pipe dream 20 years ago. And now it not only is it reality, but students have multiple devices in their home. And if the laptop's not working, you can use the phone to log in. Um, and then there's also that iPad or Android device from five years ago that we could use if something went wrong. There's the, the level of connectivity is so huge now. Uh, well, <laughs> I guess we'll go into the, the article a little bit. So the article I wrote with Sean Gallagher was about how colleges and universities are, are changing dramatically in, in response to COVID. And it's kind of an overdue thing. Over the last, you know, half of my work was in K-12 over the last two decades and half has been in higher ed. My Gates Foundation work was at innovation in higher ed. And, you know, in the background, while nobody was really writing about it, it's now gotten to the point where 51% of the master's degrees that were awarded last year were to people who attended online programs. Now, this is not this year during COVID. This is last year before COVID came. So, you know, 2018, 2019 school year. And, you know, that transformation has been happening with folks like us who've been learning and doing continuing uh, professional education online or taking certificate programs online for a while. Once you have an undergraduate degree or a master's degree, a lot of people just find it more flexible to go online and learn those additional certifications and degrees. And professional class people don't even think about it. We are learning online, but we don't think of ourselves as e-learners because maybe we thought that that continuing professional education wasn't, you know, it's not the same as a real degree, but it's been working its way down through the system uh, such that now there are at least three and probably more universities, Western Governors University, Southern New Hampshire University, Arizona State University, that have more than 100,000 students who are attending online, um, even before the pandemic hit. Um, and if you go over to the UK, uh, Open University has more than a quarter of a million students learning online. Indira Gandhi University in India has more than half a million students learning online and so online learning didn't just arrive yesterday like it might seem like to many people it has been growing for two decades and there are major universities that have been leaders in this for two decades um and so if you just plot it out and very few people take the time to plot it out it's quite likely that 51 percent of undergraduate university degrees will be online in about 15 years 
And then, you know, the article goes into, but it's not just about, you know, undergraduate education and undergraduate degrees. It's kind of splintering. More and more people are realizing they could get a one-year certificate in coding or web development or uh, digital marketing, and that might allow them to get a thirty to fifty thousand dollar a year job much more quickly than going to college for four years. And for a lot of people, that's a that's kind of a no brainer equation. I could get a fifty thousand dollar a year job if I did this one year boot camp or IT certification training program, or I could go for four years. Maybe it might even take me five years to go to college, and it's going to cost all this money, and there's going to be all this debt. And then I might get a job and I don't even know what field it would be in. That really is starting to not compute for a lot of people. And uh, I'll pause there, but the, the transformation is, is happening very rapidly on colleges and universities now who are realizing they need to get connected to the labor market. They need to have shorter programs. They need to make it more affordable. Um, and that's about half of my time is working with colleges and entrepreneurs that work with colleges to figure out how do you much more quickly retool to offer you know digital and hybrid programs at a lower price with more connection to the labor market so the connection i'm making as a k-12 person to that is that learning is pervasive and regardless of age you really have access to unlimited learning experiences as long as you take the agency to pursue those things Yet in, I would say in the K-12 sector here, and Lynn, you can affirm or refute, I think many, many of us who are in the sector just sort of have this, this view of online learning as like, it's all just garbage. Like kids can't learn, our kids in our space just can't learn that way, like they can in a face-to-face -face space. And granted, schools are much more than learning. We're providing health services, we're providing food, we're providing mm -hmm. different kinds of social experiences that are more developmental. Mm -hmm. But what would, you, what would, how would you convince, mm -hmm. how would you convince us K-12 people to look at the world of learning outside and how do we begin to bring that into our paradigm of thinking about online learning, which seems to be so mismatched? Well, I would, I would sort of point back to thinking like a researcher, that there are certain things you already know and that have been well-researched that students learn better from reading versus doing, meaning like taking an assessment or a formative assessment or engaging with work project-based learning versus learning from a lecture or other lesson plan that like most educators if we're talking about educators already know that learning happens through different modalities that that even in classroom learning is not just about the the kind of stereotype of the teacher talking and the students listening. That's actually not what happens in most classrooms, but it still is a very weird stereotype that most people still have because they don't visit classrooms regularly. In reality, students are learning all the time. They're learning as much outside the classroom, at home, with their friends. You know, the amount of time that you actually spend in that structured curriculum inside the classroom is actually dwarfed by the amount of time outside and uh, and students pursue their passions and their learning 
And when you kind of really live in that, like most educators do, then you realize they could and already are learning from, especially if you have kids in your house, they're learning from their iPads, they're learning from the TV shows, they're learning from, you know, playing on the computer and kind of following their own research rabbit hole wherever it may go. And that those are the, the, those things where there's uh, passion uh, and motivation, you know, students dig into, and that can happen digitally for for kids and and everyone actually, uh, but especially kids. It's like a, a language that they're more easily able to pick it up than we are, which is why they were called digital natives. And you know, they they can quickly figure out those features on the iPad that we couldn't figure out uh, faster. You know, at age two than I could at age thirty two, and. Um, so when people think about it that way, either educators or parents, they realize, yeah, my kid really is already digitally native and learning from, and then, then you take the next leap to say, what if there were products that were designed with learning science in mind that really knew how to, you know, just like a game can be addictive, they could be learning addictive and they could really help students learn how to write, how to be fluent with math, how to be engaged in whatever specialty subject they're interested in, chemistry, biology, physics, whatever, technology might be their thing. Um, and you can see how this education technology could really transform a student's life, but it won't be the whole thing. There will be hybrid experiences because they're still gonna be reading either in a book or an ebook. They're still gonna be engaging with other students either in collaborative learning or this type of Zoom collaboration. Um, Anyway, I could kind of, I could get on a little bit of a rant slash roll if you let me. But yeah, um. <laughs> yeah it seems it seems um, like we do have a disconnect in K twelve with our families and community members and people feeling like kids can't on, can't learn online. I'll, I have a seventeen year old um, senior in high school who during COVID you know started a business, taught himself how to. Stock, trade in the stock market and created an, an e-trade account, uh-huh. um, built up employees so that he didn't have to do, <laughs> do as much of the work. I mean, all learning online through YouTubers, through... Oh, um, yeah. My, my nine-year-old daughter like, is dying to be a YouTube sensation. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they all are. That's, that's an occupational hazard, right? <laughs> Um, but it, it is pretty amazing that when you have the right conditions to learn mm-hmm. what you're, what you're able to do. And I'm sure that's a connection back to the learning sciences too. It definitely is. Now, th- now there is some truth to the online learning experience is mediocre right now, because what's happened all of a sudden is, you know, when it, when it's Arizona state university or Southern New Hampshire, that's offering an online university program, they have a decade of it's produced almost like a high quality television show where you're one of the stars. Like that is a different kind of experience, which is why they can charge $20,000 a year for it. (laughs) Then what happened to schools in the spring where it was like, Oh my gosh, everybody's at home. We got to figure out how to use zoom or, you know, all of a sudden those Google hangouts and those, you know, Google classroom we were sort of using, it's now like essential. Um, it was a bit of a scattershot in the spring and it was chaotic and, and parents were right to recognize that and educators were right to feel very frustrated because it was, you know, all the technology had not been put in place for most school districts. 
now you can see kind of like the green shoots of teachers having had a summer to research and figure out, well, what product could I use? And let me ask a few more teachers what they're using and how can I weave this into my curriculum? And oh, I could do most of my lessons, but just a little bit differently. Um, humans are adaptable. That's the thing about K-12 education is that <laughs> there's 3 million uh, innovators in this, the teachers, they make it work. So uh, that's why innovation can actually flourish faster in, in education than in other industries. Because in other industries, everybody has a more cookie cutter role and they all are, you know, the, the greeters at Walmart or the, you know, the, the, the people who are building the next road down the, down the way. Like there's a standard way you do it. You, you follow this procedure. And there's some of that in education, but it's still half art, half science. And, it, and you do have to invent it. And that, that makes me bullish in the long run, even though it's really painful right now. Because <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it's been forced. 10 years of innovation has been forced into one year. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts and giving us a glimpse into your article. Uh, we'll link the article in the show notes so that our listeners can go ahead and take a look at um, what you've seen as happening as a result of COVID in higher ed and um, you know why some of those shifts were long overdue. So before we invite you to share what's next for you or what you're working on right now, we have a few rapid response questions. And the sure. point of these questions is just to get some additional resources for our listeners um, and ourselves to learn more about um, where you've learned and what you think we would be interested in based on this topic. So who's one expert our listeners should connect with to learn more about innovation in education um, with technology, either K-12 or higher ed? So in higher ed, I would recommend Sean Gallagher, my co-author, has written a number of books and articles about kind of the credentialization of higher ed. And also Ryan Craig is another great author. And I would also recommend the, the works of Tom Vander Ark. Tom is a prolific writer who really looks for and talks to educators about the neatest things that are going on in classrooms all over the country. And how about if you were recommending a book, what would it be? So there are quite a few books that I, I, I could recommend, but there's a book by uh, a longtime friend of mine named Broer Saxberg that is about learning engineering, which is about sort of the best practices in learning science that are out there that should be known by all teachers and all educators, but aren't necessarily known. Um, and that would be a great book for people to look into to learn about with the learning science. So we, you've said learning sciences a few times on the podcast, but we haven't actually asked you what that means to you or how you um, define learning sciences in sort of this context that you're talking about, if you would share that with our listeners and then we'll ask our last question. Sure, sure. So learning science is basically the science of how people learn, <laughs> which is kind of, you know, tautology in a way. But there is 40 years of research into exactly how, you know, you probably have all heard of it in terms of short term memory and long term memory. But you may not have thought about all the other research that's been done about how uh, different facts and uh, logic and assumptions can build on each other to create structures in the mind that allow you to function in the world. And there actually is, you know, like as a simple example, 
um, there's this concept called spacing that you first learn an idea, maybe in a class that uh, let's say the, the, the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776. Now this is a simple concept, but if you just hear it one time, it goes in your ear, short-term memory probably disappears. If you hear it seven times spaced out over the right amount of time in the right amount of ways, and you actually have to answer it, you're not just hearing it passively, but maybe you have to write it down or you have to say it back in response to a question, those seven interactions will cause it to, and seven is kind of an approximation. Some people can do it in three times, other people take 10, but approximately seven times will be needed to really lodge that fact in your brain for quite some time, perhaps even your whole life. And Concepts can be built upon each other, scaffolded upon each other. I don't have to explain this to educators, obviously, because they know this is how they construct their curriculum and how they move through their lesson planning. But you can build concept upon concept. Um, and this has been studied in, in great detail. Like, for example, the reason why the, the Chinese do uh, much better at math or the, the all Asian countries, actually, but especially China, is because they really have integrated progressions into their mathematics. Um, so, for example, in math in the U.S., we often will teach, you know, one subject like geometry and then we'll switch over to fractions and then we'll switch over to something else. And we don't progress all the way up the line of a similar uh, kind of branch of mathematics. And so you have to come back and kind of refresh people on fractions again. And, and this going back and forth and not following a progression or a line of thinking all the way to its final course causes students to have to restart over and over and over again. Like we actually completely need to revolutionize how math is taught in the United States because we haven't learned from the learning science of how it should be taught and is being taught very well in many Asian countries right now and also some European countries. Um, but, the, you know, learning science could be simple things like spacing that everybody should know to be more complicated things like mathematical progression education. <laughs> So last question um, before we invite you to share what's next, is there an online site or resource or person from whom you uh, learn regularly? There are many people that I learn from, but I would definitely say in my world, in the education technology world, EdSurge is sort of the best place to go to. Um, you could also be a subscriber to Education Week and get a lot of good information from there, obviously. Um, and I follow way too many people on Twitter, but if you actually just kind of look for ed tech experts on Twitter, there are a number of them, and it actually is worth going to Twitter and doing that, but don't sign up for too many political people on Twitter, that will really suck your life away. <laughs> but look for people who are the experts in your domain, in your subject area, in your grade level. There really are some great experts out there kind of talking about using this product or that product and what they think is best, and that's a really good way to learn. All right. Well, this has been a very interesting and enlightening conversation. I enjoyed our time with you today, Jason. So to wrap it up, is there anything that you're working on now that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, the, the main thing I'm working on right now is, I would say, this, this credential explosion, which is now reaching down into high school and even middle school, which is that there are ways for students of all ages, but it really seems to cluster between age 14 and age 40 right now, where people can teach themselves how to, like you mentioned your, your, your son who started a business. You can teach yourself to start a business. You can learn a new skill. You can get a credential that allows you to quickly, you know, start making money, uh, have a livelihood. Uh, and you don't even have to get a formal degree or a diploma. You could do this when you're 14 years old, 18 years old, you can do it right away. 
um, I don't recommend becoming a Robinhood stock trader, though. That that is highly, <laughs> and, and so I'm definitely not pushing that. Um, and uh, but but in this very moment, which people don't really fully realize, like in the '60s and '70s, the blue collar jobs were the way you could get to a middle class life. Uh, regardless of your background or where you came from. Right now, it's the new collar jobs. These are the tech-enabled jobs that are all over the place, whether it's the web development, uh, internet businesses is a really good example, actually. Digital marketing, there's data scientists, data analysts, like they really are. You, you, you don't need to go to four years of college to learn the skills for those jobs. Now that's not saying you shouldn't go to college. College is actually fantastic. I loved college. Many of my friends went to college, not all. You know, one third of the people that work at IBM now, they did a survey internally, did not go to college, yet they are still working at IBM. I worked at Microsoft. About 20% of the people that work at Microsoft did not graduate from college. I should be clear, they did not graduate from college. They might have gone to college for a while, but they didn't graduate from college. So you still can be successful if you get these certificates and certifications and find the technology-enabled job that's right for you. And I just also want to add for artists and, and other people who think, I'm just not a tech person. Like, even art jobs are tech jobs now. You're a graphic designer, and that can be very creative too. Or if you're a musician, you're someone who works on music production. That's a very digitally uh, enabled job. And, and you know people in that field know that way better than me. And so all jobs are becoming tech jobs. Like I'm talking to a superintendent and assistant superintendent who are creating a podcast <laughs> on a Zoom. This is a tech job now too. So they're all tech jobs. And, and I'm trying to think about what companies could flourish in that area and bring you know, a more equitable set of outcomes and more middle-class jobs to as many people as possible. And sorry, I keep rambling, but I love this stuff. <laughs> well, we love it. We love listening to it. It's been a great conversation. Thanks, yeah. Jason. It's, it's easy to appreciate your passion for this work. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity. Really great to talk to you. So thanks so much for joining us today, Jason. We've linked uh, many of the resources you've shared with us in the show notes uh, so that our listeners can learn more. Um, each episode, we leave you with a question to think about with the idea of provoking reflection and conversation. This episode's question, how does the intersection of education and technology provide opportunities for learners within and beyond the classroom walls? If you've enjoyed this episode, would like to comment or check out the resources shared today, visit the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season seven, episode 20. That's all for this episode. We'll be back next week with another conversation featuring other innovative thought leaders. Thanks again for joining us today, Jason. Bye-bye. Hey.